Before we get to today's episode of the podcast, I want to give you a brief snippet of our Stay Forth story. Stay Forth Designs, we exist to help leaders get healthy and reach sustainable impact. We don't want you to burn out or flame out. In the meantime, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know that we're crazy about leaders living and leading right side up. This world is upside down in so many ways. At the kingdom of God, there's this picture of leading right side up. What feels like upside down to have limits, to have boundaries, to have sustainable impact over the long haul without burning out, without flaming out, without having a moral failure of some kind. My friends, it is possible. And we work with leaders each week at Stay Forth who are on that path, who are getting healthy, who are overcoming obstacles, who are leading at an incredibly high level, who are gaining clarity in their lives. And we see this, friends, it is possible to live and lead right side up for the long haul without losing our souls in the meantime. And there are two ways that we primarily live that out at Stay Forth. The first one is coaching that helps leaders clarify. We are leadership coaches. We help leaders to be able to understand, to discern some of the obstacles in their leadership and some of the next steps that they can take. And then we hold leaders accountable. We get to watch leaders grow into the influence that God has designed them for. And we're seeing some incredible things happen. Not just leaders accomplishing incredible things, the what in their life, but becoming incredible people, the who in their life. The second thing that we do at Stay Fort Designs is we host experiences that help leaders to replenish. We are tired in this season. Leadership is hard. It's challenging for people to want something from you all the time, whether you are a mom or a CEO or you lead a nonprofit or you're a pastor in a local church, you're a podcaster, you're an online influencer. That is hard for people to have expectations of you. We create these four-day experiences where we serve you. You come, you don't lift a finger. We go to beautiful places. We pair you with like-minded, like-hearted leaders We have great conversations, and oh yeah, we have fun and really good food along the way. Those experiences are an incredible time. You'll continue to hear about those here on the podcast. The coaching is helping leaders to win, to become the people God has designed them to be so they can do the things God has designed them to do. Guys, we are seeing incredible things happening. If you are interested in coaching to help you clarify in this next season, what steps you're going to take, and then to be on the path to take those. One of our coaches can get a free breakthrough session with you. Our coaches come in from Zoom all over the country, and we have some incredible leaders that we can match and pair with you and with your needs. And if you are interested in an experience, head on over to stayforth.com, click on the experiences tab or click on the coaching tab. You can see a little bit more what's behind that. Go ahead and just send us an intro email. Tell us about the kind of coaching or experience that you desire and we will let you know when that becomes available for an experience, and we will connect you with the right coach, and you get a free breakthrough coaching session to be able to clarify some of the things going on in your life and leadership right now. Friends, we are more than a podcast here at the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We have all kinds of other things, including a Right Side Up community, including our Right Side Up journal. We have an email we send every single Tuesday called Tuesday Tune-Up with practical next steps. You can find information on that in the show notes below. We're going to continue to host conversations about health and impact at the collision or the intersection of the spiritual and the practical. Friends, who you are matters more than what you do. We want to help you steward the life God has given you the things you are designed to do. But in order to do that, 
you need to figure out who you are and who God has designed you to do. We're going to continue to have these conversations right here on the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Now, on with this episode. John Rittner from the heart of Hollywood. Good to have you here, man. Man, you too. You too. This is great, Alan. Look forward to connecting. Yeah, man. It's been fun to gotten to see your church uh, from the inside out. We may or may not have attended a Dodgers game, although you have no allegiance. You are a Cubs fan at heart. Um, But kind of let our listeners in just a little bit. What's it like to pastor in a place like Hollywood? You know, I love being around artists and creatives. You know, I think that um, I grew up more of an athlete than an artist, but I've always been a creative thinker, a creative problem solver, kind of an eccentric outside the box, um, you know, kind of person. And so to be in a church with 80% of our community that are in the entertainment industry that are really artists at heart, that are creative storytellers, um, you know, trying to to push envelopes, to move people, to, to really see life um, transformation take place through your stories, right? I mean, that's really what you want to do. No one's trying to tell the same story uh, over and over again. You're trying to, to tell a story that moves people to be different, live different, impact the world differently. That's inspiring and that's exciting. And, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges of that, of course, is that, you know, if, if you've worked at all in kind of more of a suburban setting or even a rural setting, often church becomes a place where you're trying to inspire people to live out a sense of calling in their life because maybe they don't really have one. They've got a career, but not a calling. The irony is that urban life, especially in an entertainment or industry like this, is the opposite. The reason people live here is because they have a calling. They they gave up everything. They've given up the house. They've given up, you know, I mean, my kids are in, you know, we're in bunk beds up until a month ago and they still share a room and they're teenagers, you know? So we've, we've given up that kind of spacious dream suburban house in order to pursue a calling in the city. And so that's a little bit challenging trying to think in terms of what does the spiritual life look like when people already have a sense of calling and you're trying to sustain that rather than spark it, which is what a lot of my early church years were like, you know? Mm. Yeah. Some of the conversations after the service, as I got to know folks, I thought, man, like these are wildly talented people who, like you say, have left the Midwest or have left anywhere else for the dream. And I'm sure there's, again, deep joys and deep challenges, both of those. Um, Talk about a little bit of your experience. You spent some time um, here in the States and some of those maybe more suburban places. You've been overseas, done ministry there. Then you've been in the heart of Hollywood. How have all of those sort of prepared you for this message of positively irritating that we're going to talk about? Yeah. Yeah, I spent 10 years working uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia at the uh, at a church that had taken me in after I you know, got breached for Christ through a fraternity house. One of our crazy old connections, Jeff Bauer, who was uh, one of the Small Christian guys world. in Sigma Chi, I know. And then I think became your youth leader. And somewhere in the world, there's a picture of me speaking at like a pool party when you were a high school student or something. Wild. It's just crazy. Wild, just crazy. Man. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, you know, these seven Christian guys living in a house kind of reached me. And so my heart was always, uh, to kind of be part of that transformation in hard places and, um, got mentored by a pastor who invited me to come back after seminary and kind of make disciples alongside him. And, uh, the church was, you know, four or five, 700, somewhere in there when I came out of seminary and then kind of grew to 
you know, hit that 2000 tipping point of kind of mega church land and was eventually around kind of 3000 when I left. And, and I had kind of every job that you can have in the attractional church, you know, from youth guy to men's ministry, discipleship guy, women's, I did women's ministry for six weeks. Remember one time, like, just don't mess it up, hand it off to somebody quickly, you know, you've been a women's um, pastor. small groups. That makes me yeah, yeah. so happy. Joe. <laughs> I was like, I'll do anything if you need me to do it, but I'm I'm not changing a thing. I'm just going to listen to these ladies and empower them, right? Um, and then eventually becoming kind of the number two associate pastor and second communicator. And my mentor even had a bout of cancer. And so I kind of stepped into that interim senior pastor role. And, um, you know, in, in so many ways, I was kind of living the American church dream. You know, as Hybels used to say, everything was up and to the right. All the metrics that we cared about were growing with budgets and people on Sunday and influence. And and then also while that was happening, just beginning to have this stirring in my spirit that like, really, I felt like a, 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 a program director on a Christian cruise ship, you know, like all I was really doing was maybe entertaining Christians, creating more programming for them. And I, I couldn't tell if I was actually impacting the world. I couldn't tell if the disciples we were making had the quality to impact others. And I'm not sure they even had the margin because we were filling their calendars with so many events and I remember when the when the Willow Creek's reveal study came out back then in the you know late 90s, I kind of said that more Christian programs and more Christian ministries aren't actually forming a more Christ-like disciple. Activity doesn't equal maturity. And I remember thinking, oh crap, because that is like yeah. what we're staking everything on right now, you know. And so in the midst of all that, I just wondered, you know, is there another way to do this? Is anyone trying it differently? You know, and uh, a friend of ours who was a missionary in Brussels, Belgium, and our church sponsored him. Uh, he was in town and I invited him to come speak at our kind of 60 person all staff meeting. And he just shared about the challenges of making disciples in post-Christian Europe. And I'm not sure I'd even heard that term uh, much. I'd thought a lot about post-modernism, but not post-Christianity. And the way he began to articulate what it's like to be in a culture that no longer centers the church and no longer trusts institutional religion um, and really no longer sees the church as the source of good news in culture, something just kind of resonated to me. Like, you know, this is actually what I'm hearing from college kids more and more. This is where I'm sensing culture is going. And then the Holy Spirit just kind of took over in that meeting and gave me this whisper, you know, what if you could go to America's future and experiment and see what the church is going to have to look like in order to thrive and then come back and help prepare American churches for what's coming. And, um, you know, I just thought, man, that sounds intriguing. And I started talking to Carlton and nine months later, you know, my family and I stepped out of our role at 10, of 10 years at this mega church and became basically micro church planters uh, alongside him and his team in Brussels, Belgium, in the capital of the European Union, planting little neighborhood based 20 to 40 people, highly contextualized, very local uh, micro churches that were engaging little pockets of the city on their own through um, acts of mission, acts of friendship, and then gatherings for worship. And then once a month, the whole kind of, you know, decentered network would come together for one big gathering that we called the All Well, uh, where we would have a little bit more of a traditional style service with, you know, kind of your professional teaching and, and music and things like that, but also a big long meal. And, um, you know, and so uh, that experience for me really kind of opened my eyes to other ways of being the church and other kind of new paradigms that were going to need to be adopted in post-Christianity. And we can talk about that. And then eventually, after three years of that, we felt this call to return, you know, and kind of finish this journey as we had initially discerned it, which was to, to help American churches 
in this process and um, through providential events, had a connection and ended up here in Hollywood in a very post-Christian culture, in a, especially in an industry that you know, really no longer sees Christianity as a source of good news. And, and you can be a, one writer said to me, you can be a Christian, you just can't be a Republican out here. And I kind of laughed. <laughs> I said, well, I kind of know what you mean, which is there's a sort of Christian that, that especially in Hollywood is, uh, is not very welcome, you know? And so to be honest, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the people in our church grew up in those sort of Christian churches, right? Kind of the very Republican, very conservative, very evangelical, uh, very outspoken. Um, and now trying to figure out how you contextualize the life of Jesus into a culture where that's not welcome, and yet spirituality is welcome, um, and grace is welcome, and the good news is still sorely needed, you know. And so that's been a really fun challenge for now six years to work with this community and to to kind of invert the pipeline from getting everyone to come to us on a Sunday to really reimagining ourselves as a seven day a week sent community making disciples in the ordinary spaces of life. And you, as a church, have asked this, you know, kind of audacious question: What if instead of a brick and mortar restaurant? we saw ourselves as food trucks dispersed out in the city. I love that. Of course, I love me some food trucks, but tell me more about that. Yeah. You know, uh, again, living in a, in a, in a city with all these storytellers, you know, the power of story, the power of image and metaphor that Jesus so perfectly captured. I remember about, you know, two, three years in here, as we were beginning to kind of shift culture, realizing that we needed some language to explain the difference, how we were trying to be different. Uh, and I could just sense that calling everyone a church planter was freaking people out. There was just no way to say to the average Christian, hey, God call, is calling you to be a church planter in your neighborhood. They had all sorts of negative connotations about that. And they assumed that meant professional and training and, you know, all that. And so, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Jack Wolf in Atlanta, I remember we were at a, at a, a gathering one time. We were just talking and, and this language around. Uh, you know, what it would look like to be a more of a food truck style of church came up. And I thought, that's it, man. It's it's restaurant church versus food truck church. And so I came back and wrote up a script uh, that kind of explained, you know, that the American church is operated predominantly like a restaurant, brick and mortar. You hang a sign, you put together a good menu. You got something on the menu for every age group. Uh, you hire a well-trained staff. You know, each staff person only does one thing, much like a, a volunteer on a Sunday morning at church. You bring in a celebrity chef who has their own following. And, you know, if you produce a good meal, people come back and they tell their friends. And as you grow, you might even have to expand the property or, or franchise to other locations. And, you know, the celebrity chef puts out their own, you know, recipe book, so to speak. And this is really what the mega church has become. It's become, you know, what church is serving the best Sunday meal in town? And then how do we grab market share from other restaurants and, and bring in as many existing eaters, Christians, to this place so that we can grow and grow and grow? Um, but any restaurant knows that if you get a couple of bad reviews or if you have a, you know, a, a scandal that takes place, something you know that the place has a, a, gets an F rating from the health inspector or there are rats running around one night, <laughs> your reputation can change pretty quickly and no one's coming anymore. And so in many ways, that I think is what is beginning to happen with the American restaurant style church. And so I, I just say, what if we reimagined the American church, not as a restaurant, but a fleet of food trucks where you had small 
uh, teens working together, making a very contextualized meal, you know, Korean hot wings, lobster rolls, you know, sushi. I'll take all exactly right. And then, and then going out into the neighborhood where people were already hungry and needed food to come to them. And maybe they didn't have the ability to drive to lunch, but man, if there was a truck outside of, you know, the place where they were working, they, they, they connect there. Um, and the beauty of those teams is that they're often cross-trained. They have a lot more buy-in. A lot of times they're the actual owners and operators of the food truck themselves. So they care much more about its success. And so the quality of experience and, and the, the meal they're presenting can often be a better meal than you would get in a big restaurant. And even if the quality is not better, the experience is usually better for the eater. It's like, oh man, I've discovered something that not everyone knows about. And so, you know, we ended up, I took this script to a friend who is a producer in our church. And I said, what would it look like to make this into like a, an animated explainer video, you know? And so she hired a, a, an artist and we hired a voiceover actor all from within our, our church community. We ended up kind of producing this little two minute video that we put online that then others have come and asked to borrow that basically just asked us questions. You know, what would it look like for the church to operate like a fleet of food trucks? And um, it was just a simple way to reimagine missional communities or micro church plants, but to do it in a language that I thought would fit our city better than, you know, kind of a, a church planting conference where all these pastors would go, oh yeah, I know what that is. Um, so yeah, so it's been fun and we're still growing towards that. We've got a couple food trucks that are up and operating, a couple that had to shut down during COVID, um, you know, and we're always trying to kind of recruit these teams and put them together using you know, the, the five-fold APEST model is a way to think about team dynamics and then trying to release and sustain them in the work that they're doing out in the city. Wow. I love that. I was talking with a mutual friend of ours, Jeff, recently, and um, we we're just kind of dreaming together on mm. some of the limited language um, that we have in uh, in English and, and just can't quite get there. And the phrase aromatic, aromatic communities. Uh, came out of my mm. mouth and we began to kind of joke about that. And then suddenly, I mean, almost like the food truck conversation, we're like, wait a minute, that's a, like that you can taste and see some of what the Lord may be trying to birth um, in these different places. And, and that's kind of what I hear here. I'm actually like picturing being at my favorite food truck, tacos, of course. Um, yeah. Amazing experience that that is, um, but how different that is. Yeah, that, that, well, yeah, and it's it's all it's all these again. The the Jesus life is so uh, captured by these little pictures and images. You know, even this week I'm thinking about salt and light for Sunday, and like, how do you you know display that? But in my book, I use the the phrase amuse bouche, which was this thing I discovered in in Belgium. You know, in French cuisine, there's this thing amuse bouche, which is basically means like a to amuse your mouth. You know, and it's mm. it's a simple hors d'oeuvre, but it's a one bite little taster that they bring out and after you've ordered your food and the waiter comes out and he'll say compliments of the chef and he'll put this down and you just get this one little taste and it's not something you've ordered you don't even often maybe know exactly what's in it you just trust it and you eat it and you think to yourself oh my gosh that was incredible what was that and then i remember thinking if that's what you get for free in this restaurant from this chef just imagine how good the meal is going to be that I paid for, you know, I'm going to get a whole plate of something like that. And I, I just remember thinking, this is what the church is meant to be. We're meant to be in a moose bouche for the kingdom. We're meant to be just a, 
a community that gives people a little taste, you know, and so that when you engage with a, a family that knew Jesus or a small group of people that knew Jesus, or you engaged in a, uh, you know, in a co-working space that had some Jesus followers and you saw the quality of life that they were living, you'd go, oh man, if this is what, you know, the, these people are like here. I wonder what else I can learn about. If yeah. this is what Jesus looks like, you know, I want more of that. Uh, and then eventually to realize like, oh, there's a whole kingdom to come that is nothing but this life, you know, and you've got to meet the king and enter into it because it's going to be even better than this, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I, I think that's a lot of what we have to do in this new world where we are more kind of decentered and, um, you know, less privileged to, to, own the center of culture where everyone knows our language already. They know our vocabulary. I mean, they, you know, they're going to come hear our sermons. You know, it's really that prophetic imagination of the exile, you know, of to tell these dangerous stories, to use these pictures that spark imagination in people who don't necessarily know all of our vocabulary. Mm. And that's a new skill set, to be honest, than just, mm. you know, dropping a 45 minute message on a Sunday morning. Man, so much there, John, for another day. We'll have another conversation on this amuse-bouche. I love that. Positively irritating. So you write a book about irritation. Why? Why is that the title? I don't know you, man, but life's been pretty irritating recently. <laughs> I, Not I had this always book positively. Going before COVID even came out. And then I remember when, yeah, when COVID finally broke, I thought, well, this is actually perfect. Um, you know, years ago, I heard this, uh, this metaphor that stuck with me. And again, I, I always think in terms of pictures, you know, that, uh, a grain of sand that, that could blow into the human eye will become an irritant and it'll naturally lead you to, to rub your eye, to, to do everything you can to get rid of that irritant so you can go back to the way things were just a moment ago. Um, because you, you're afraid that if you don't, it'll lead to infection. Uh, and so I think that's often how we think about irritants. How do I expel them so I can return to normal and get back to doing what I was just doing? But the irony is that that same grain of sand out in the water, in the ocean, if it if it embeds itself in the the, the mantle of an oyster, uh, the oyster will have a very different response. The oyster will not try to expel it. It'll actually embrace it. And it'll come around it and begin to coat it with this substance called nacre that eventually will become a pearl, you know, something of beauty that it can offer to the world. And so the, the difference between the concretion of a pearl, this making of a pearl and the infection of the human eye is has nothing to do with the grain of sand. The irritant is constant. What is unique is the response of the organism. And the organism's response actually reflects its nature and character in the world. And, and so was, the more I thought about that, the more I realized that the post-Christianity has become an irritant for the church. This idea of being marginalized and decentered, where people don't know their Bibles anymore, and they, the culture doesn't ascribe to a biblical worldview or a, a biblical sexual ethic or all these sort of things that, that it did in the 50s and 60s, it's irritating to the church. And the number one response I tend to see in the church is kind of a culture war response of, you know, we have to get rid of the irritant. We have to go back to the way things were. Um, and, and I just was trying to spark people's imagination to say, actually, one of the things I saw in Europe was that you can embrace this new reality and create something beautiful in the midst of it that actually is very compelling for people. You don't have to kind of, you know, take a, a hostile stance against it. You can contextualize the life of Jesus within it. And so then when COVID came and COVID was its own irritant, 
again, I think you saw some churches who were like, hey, irritants must be resisted. We have to keep doing things the way we've always done them. And then you saw other churches being incredibly creative and spontaneous and trusting the, you know, the work of the spirit to find new ways to, to be the church when they couldn't simply meet on Sunday morning, like they always had, you know? So, um, for me, it's just a lesson in kind of adaptive leadership, you know, and, and, uh, being willing to experiment and innovate in the midst of the challenges of life. And, and so that was, uh, kind of the, the primary metaphor that I used in my book to talk about my own journey and the innovation that we're trying to do here at Ecclesia. Mm. Yeah, obviously one of the byproducts of this post-Christian culture that's quickly come our way is the rise of cynicism and skepticism, especially toward mm. things that feel like you described earlier, very religious, even if people grew up within those environments. So talk about how those can be an opportunity for innovation, the skepticism, the cynicism, how can we actually enter in as opportunity instead of to expel? Yeah, I think um, the church has lost institutional credibility. And, um, and yet there is an incredible opportunity for the individual Christian to build individual credibility or relational credibility. You know, I think my, my handle on Twitter says something like um, trying to get the church to act less like Christians and more like Jesus. You know, I mean, because that's that's kind of where we are as a culture that that most people's experience of Christianity as they define it is negative. And yet there's still an opening and an interest often in the way of Jesus and what that looks like. And so, you know, I'll give you a simple example. Yesterday, you know, one of my missional spaces during covid has been this local golf course. You know, when I couldn't be with my community and I had no people to pastor because we weren't gathering on a Sunday. The only thing that was open in LA were golf courses. So I walked up to the, or drove up to this golf course a mile from my house and I became a volunteer marshal. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you volunteer six hours a week and you can play for free a couple of times. So partly it's because I'm cheap. I don't want to pay for my golf, but partly because it was a way of embodying good news up there. And so even yesterday while I'm playing golf, uh, there's these three guys and they say, Hey, you know, I've, I've seen you out here before and I, you work here sometimes too, right? I said, yeah. And then it was funny, one of the guys I was playing with was an older gentleman, and he kept driving up into their group with his cart. He kept like driving on the tee box while they were hitting. And they were getting upset. I could tell it, right? And so in this moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I mean, I'm not working right now. I'm playing, but I'm going to engage the space with hospitality as if I was a host, right? That's part of what I think Jesus did. Wherever he went, he kind of acted with this missional hospitality. And so I just went up to the guys and said, hey, man, I'm really sorry. You know, this is my friend. You know, he's he's old. He's confused. I'm not sure he's even kind of aware of what he's doing. I know he likes to play fast. And I said, hey, it's not you guys. I, you know, there's a group ahead of you. And I, I you know, I kind of gave these guys this pound like, hey, and it, they laugh. Yeah, no worries about it later. And I'm telling you, in the parking lot, I drove up to them and I said, uh, I said, hey, you want you want that, you want that guy's number? He was trying to play with you today. Maybe you want to play with him next week. And they <laughs> laughed. And, and then, Alan, I sat there for 30 minutes in the parking lot talking with these three guys who all invited me to come play golf with them next week and all invited me to kind of say, Hey, we'd love to have you come play with us, you know? And, and I just thought, isn't that amazing? Just the power of an apology. I offered mm-hmm. an apology that wasn't even on my behalf, right. but I just, I, I saw a moment. I apologized. I, I tried to be a good host. And what they basically said was, Hey dude, you're good news to us. We like you. We want you to be in our, group, right? 
And then I don't often play the pastor card, but but I, the guy wanted to text me, and I said, you know what? In this context, knowing these guys, knowing a little bit about the language they were using, I actually gave them my business card. So I, you know, I work Sunday mornings, but I'm you know I'm often available on Mondays with my day off. And um, and I just thought, you know, these guys now are going to have to kind of wrestle with this guy who created relational credibility, who they like, they invited into their life, and then also the fact that he's a pastor. And that may that may be uh, you know normal for them, but it may also create a little bit of dissonance. Like, oh, that's not what we thought a pastor would be like, you know. And so that sort of disruption, I think, and and I talk in the book about this idea of disruptive disciple making, where you have to identify what sort of cultural assumption does this person have about Jesus, about Christianity, and if it's negative, then how do you disrupt it? If they think. Christians are judgmental, then how do you show them that Christians are merciful and, and, and positive and grace oriented? You know, if they think they're anti-science, how do you make a comment that shows that you think God created science and has value? You know, I mean, what is it where you can disrupt and leave them kind of going, oh man, I thought I knew what a Christian was, but that guy's not like, or that woman's not like what I thought, you know? And I think if you can get them to to maybe question Christianity, then maybe you can get them to, to rethink even Jesus. And, and, and maybe Jesus isn't all that I thought he was, or maybe he's more real, you know? And so I think that's the skill set for the modern disciple maker is when you don't have institutional credibility, when you can't just invite someone to, to a program on a Sunday, um, you have to become the person who creates credibility um, and then knows how to engage in those spaces as kind of a disciple maker yourself. And, and that's you know, a lot of what I've given myself to recently is trying to write and equip and train people to think about that new skill set in this world. Talk about posture for a minute, John. In order to live mm-hmm. that way, what posture changes do we need to make? Yeah, um, I think the, the first pushback I often get when I start talking about making disciples in the first, second, third spaces, you know, places you live, work, and play, uh, you know, this idea of embracing the scent life, you know, in, in the ordinary spaces, people are like, I don't have time for that. I mean, gosh, I live in LA. I've got three kids. I'm, you know, my work in two jobs. We're commuting all day. Who's got time for missional living. And one of the phrases that I kind of try to remind people is that, you know, this is not, I'm not asking you to add something to your life. I'm simply asking you to embrace this posture of aligning your life around these new priorities. So it's not addition, it's alignment. You're already at in your neighborhood. You're already at your workspace. You're already at the gym or the pub or the restaurant, or the coffee shop you go to. Those things are already in your life. You don't have to add anything. But can you enter into those spaces with intentionality? So can you maybe frequent one space more regularly, cut down on your consumerist habits and maybe always go for the lowest price or the best deal or you know, whatever's hip and cool, but frequent one place with regular proximity. I mean, one place in proximity with frequency and then enter with intentionality, you know? And so one of the little things that I even like to do when I enter into these spaces is try to think about where the threshold is, you know, mm-hmm. what, what is golf course and what is not golf course. Mm-hmm. For me, it's kind of the, it's the road where you park and then walk over or, mm-hmm. you know, what is not coffee shop? What is coffee shop? And as you cross that threshold, as you cross over kind of into liminality, to just offer a simple prayer and say, Holy Spirit, alert me to the ways that you are working in this place that I might join you. You know, trusting that I'm not bringing Jesus with me. Jesus is already there. He cares about these people more than I do. He's at work in their world. 
And I just want to be able to see it so I can join it, mm. you know? And so I think that posture for me has relieved a lot of the stress that somehow mm. it's all yeah. on me, you know, to start from scratch with somebody and make a disciple to get them from negative 10 to positive 10 on the old evangelism spectrum. Right. But to just say, how's God working? How could I join? And how could maybe my engagement with them be good news and help them kind of take one more mm. step closer to rethinking Jesus as mm. having value in their own life? Yeah. Interesting that you say that, um, John, and the way I've heard it described, I think is really helpful for people is from additional to intentional and mm. I need more, right? We already live in a culture of excess. We have too much to, yeah. and what if I actually, instead of just a cup of coffee, went with five extra minutes of margin? Um, it's a very different approach versus I got to get in and got to get out. I'm angry if somebody gets yeah. in my way or if a line's too long to, oh, there's a line. There's a human here. Very, very different. Um, one of the spaces for me is selling my old stuff. So it used to be Craigslist. Oh, really? Now it's Facebook yeah. Marketplace. Somebody comes to my house, usually isn't comfortable enough even to walk up to my front door, which is a whole nother deal. That's shifted in the last five years. But mm. this lady comes up yesterday and you know she has a breathing machine, which is fairly common in Colorado, but breathing machine. And she's struggling. It looks like she's been crying mm. a little bit. And she said, I saw on your Facebook profile that you do some work with people, with leaders. Is that like life coaching or something? And would you work with my son? He's in his 30s and we started talking. Wow. And I literally said to her, hey, and, and she said, but it can't really be religious. And I said, listen, I speak human and I also speak dude. And if he speaks either of those <laughs> languages and she goes, exactly, he does. Those are his I languages. It. I said, he'll be okay. Why don't you go ahead and introduce us? And I'd be glad to have a free session with him. And it, the people yeah, that cool. show up at my house and hang around longer than they need to, when they were once afraid to walk, 40 feet to my door is unbelievable. The conversations that break out. Mm. And so that's just been a reminder yeah. for me. I walked inside and thought that was a significant conversation with a mom who's tearing up thinking about her son in his thirties. You never know posture wise, uh, man, so much here, John, we better not talk for a few more hours. Although we easily could feels like we need a baseball game again to catch up. That's right. That's uh, talk right. about how just kind of last question here how mm -hmm. you stay healthy and grounded as disciple, a dude, a dad, husband, pastor, leader, all the things. How do you stay healthy? How do you stay grounded? Yeah. Well, first, let me just admit that um, even in this last year, I had to be honest enough to say I, I wasn't being healthy. Um, last year, I said in the middle of 2020, I kind of said to my elders, I'm not doing well. I just need you guys, you need you men and women to know that I'm not doing well. I'm not quite sure why, but I don't, um, I, I just, I just can tell. And I was, um, I, that took a little bit of courage to kind of say, but I knew my elder board would respond well to it. And so I ended up doing a, a 10 week sabbatical, um, at their encouragement and at their, you know, by their grace to gift me with that at the beginning of the year. And I just began to rethink about, you know, rethink my daily practices, my kind of weekly rhythms and stuff, and realized that I'd gotten into some kind of daily liturgies of life that were forming me in a direction I didn't want, you know, whether it was excessive social media or doom scrolling the news or, you know, just ways of disconnecting rather than staying present with what I was feeling uh, and what I was experiencing. Uh, and what I realized is that for me, what that was doing was building up a reservoir of resentment and anger and frustration 
um, that would then either explode or lead me to this incredible sense of entitlement that the world now owes me something because I'm getting screwed here, people, mm. you know, yeah. and I, it's, I, and I, I don't have the courage to tell you, but man, I'm going to find ways to, you know, to get what I deserve out of life without you knowing kind of stuff. It was, it was, it was some bad practices. And so um, I think for me, one of the things that, that I try to do on a regular basis is healthy self-disclosure. And so, you know, I, I'll almost have an exam and where I'll lay at night and go, hey, is there anything I stuffed today that I should have said? You know, did I hold anything back that would have been healthier for me to express? Um, you know, just the other day, my wife and I had kind of a, a moment, you know, like every marriage does where something happened and it wasn't appropriate to talk about it because people were around. And by that night, I realized oh, the emotions gone down. I could just let it go. And I thought, no, 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 you can't do that. You, I mean, you're not really letting it go. You're storing it up for later is what you're doing. And so I just kind of had to say, honey, can we just talk about what happened the other day? This was my experience. This is what I felt. I don't like, I didn't like the way you treated me. And it made me feel small and, and embarrassed. And, and that's hard for a dude to do sometimes, right? Because you feel vulnerable. But yep. man, she received it with grace. And then I said, hey, what did I do that prompted that kind of response? So then I, I could hear my stuff as well. And just those little micro reconciliations, I think, have made marriage better for me. Um, and then even with my staff, to be try to be more honest and say, you know, I've had a lot of unspoken expectations of you. Uh, and then I'll get frustrated when you don't meet them. And it's not your job to read my mind. And so I, I need to say this stuff out loud, you know? And so that, that That's practice good. of self-disclosure has been really good. And then what I've realized in my own kind of Sabbath and resting is that my job tends to be very intellectual. It's studying, it's strategizing, it's, you know, um, creating in my, my mind even. And so what I need in order to rest is actually physical ac activity. So what I can't do is, you know, go sit in the woods and ponder the meaning of life for eight hours on my day off because I've kind of been doing that during the week in some ways, right? I've been in this spiritual and in, in intellectual space. So, you know, on my Sabbath every week, you know, I play basketball for an hour and a half and I often play golf for four hours in the afternoon. And that's my day. And I'm exhausted by the end of it, but I feel so alive. Yeah. You know, I feel like, man, what, what I did broke my rhythm. And so, you know, one of the things I've been asking kind of leaders that I work with is, you know, how does your Sabbath break up the rhythm of the rest of your week? So if Jesus, you know, if God created for six days, the day of rest was also a day of breaking the rhythm of those other days. And so, you know, for me, sports doesn't feel like creation in a sense. It feels like recreation, you know, and so and yet that recreation literally does that recreating within me again. Um, and so. Um, those are kind of a couple of the practices that have been kind of keeping me sane this year. That's good. Well, John, appreciate you reminding us of the irritant, perhaps even being some of the irritant. <laughs> Irritate on, my friend. I think that's what we say. Uh, his book, Friends, Positively Irritating. I encourage you to pick this up. And we didn't even get into neighboring today or officially use the language in it. We share just such a common heart for that. I want to remind you, if you're listening to this, you are a food truck. You have the innate ability within you, the Holy Spirit with you to be salt and light, to be good news, to be a taste, um, a taste and see, an aroma, a mouche, yeah. if you will, of the That's it. favorite new phrase. So John, so good, man, to chat with you. We'll have you back on the podcast. Let's talk again sometime, my man. Thanks so much, Alan. Good to see you, buddy. 
Yourself, love.